Good morning. We, uh, we actually are honored to have two special guests with us this morning. Uh, John Gachinga is the new chaplain at World Relief. He's here from Kenya. Uh, we're pleased to have uh, John with us this morning. He'll be with World Relief for the next three months, and uh, it's uh, our honor to, uh, to support World Relief in the important work that they are doing. Um, and, uh, oh, I do have another special announcement coming up. Joe, can you grab um, – oh, no, I have it right here. Never mind. Um, many of you have noticed that we have uh, a new website, and uh, that is thanks to the work of Joe Miller in shepherding the process and to uh, Mark and Kendall Ludwig for their design and programming work on that. But uh, we have, for the last several years, uh, had our website taken care of by Dan Holosky. And uh, Dan has put in uh, tireless effort in making sure that not only that we can give uh, the information we need to to each other uh, so we can keep track of our calendar and uh, make sure we know who's cleaning the church when, but also so that we have a welcoming and uh, friendly portal to the outside world. And uh, in, uh, Dan, if you don't mind coming up. As an expression of our gratitude, um, what? No, that's okay. <laughs> um, we have uh, 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 either either a couple nights at the Antrim or one night and a really nice bottle of wine uh, for you. And Kelly, we want to thank you for all your hard work on that. We, uh, we are honored to have with us this morning Rabbi Andy Bush from Baltimore Hebrew Congregation. Um, actually, the, the, the most remarkable thing about Andy is not his affiliation with Baltimore Hebrew. It's his affiliation with a, a very important uh, cultural landmark also out on the interwebs known as Old Jews Telling Jokes. What, what's the relation again? Remind me. Uh, OldJewsTellingJokes.com. Yes. Um, if you go, go there on the website, um, and if you go to the first season of filming, every... Uh, person but one there is either my immediate relative or it's basically every adult male of my childhood plus my cousin Diane. My, the, 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 drive, the creative force behind this is, a, is, is my second cousin. Your second cousin. We have a my, sample my of this, I think. My father is Malcolm, yes. so the best two sites on the, jokes on the entire site are Malcolm, Our, Malcolm Bush's. Go, go there. Malcolm, we'll, we'll go for that. Go I think there, we, have, we have, we have, well, we I, Malcolm up I, there? I, I had to do some pre-screened ones because not all of them are There's safe fact, for, uh, I have not been years. able to send this out to my whole congregation because it's yeah. a little, uh, yes. <laughs> this man goes to see his rabbi he and he says, Rabbi, my wife is poisoning me. I know she's poisoning me. And the rabbi says, calm down, calm down. No, no, I know. But I need your advice. I don't know what to do. The rabbi says, well, give me a chance to talk with her, and then I'll get back to you. So about three days later, the rabbi calls the guy, and he says, um, I had a long talk with your wife. I talked to her for three hours. And he says, yes, yes. So what's your advice? Take the poison. <laughs> <laughs> So this is the kind of thing we can... I will give my dad... The real credit to my father is he has two jokes on the site. Um, One of them, my brother, my sister, and I have heard at least once a month for our entire lives, and I'm the youngest in the family. But the amazing thing is the other joke my father told, none of us had ever heard him tell before. That was impressive, actually. Can you tell it? Uh, Go online. Too too long. Too long. Okay. (laughs) That one's too long. Okay. 
Well, and I think, oh, do we have, are you, I think we got some sun glare coming in. Can we uh, close okay. that door? But yeah. Um, so uh, anyway, we're, we're pleased to have uh, Andy with us. Andy is one of the uh, people who went on the uh, MCI clergy initiative trip uh, to uh, Israel back in November that I was uh, honored to participate in. And uh, we have had the privilege of having some of the other folks from that trip here with us. Um, we had uh, uh, Rabbi Ron Schulman most recently, and then before that we had uh, Steve Schwartz. Steve, in fact, came on Jerry Garcia's birthday, which is saying something. I'm surprised he left his, his uh, music. It is a most when, holy when day of observation, yes. Yeah. For Steve especially. Yeah. But uh, um, uh, Andy's uh, the senior rabbi at Baltimore Hebrew Congregation, and you've been there how long now, Andy? I am just reaching three years. Three years. Or three years. So how, how does a nice Jewish boy like you end up at a place like that? Uh, by accident, though, my, my kids tell me if we, if we keep moving, they're leaving us. Uh, so I came here more notable in hearing the prayer about the destruction in the South. Uh, I'm more notable than my move here three years ago was that um, uh, three years before that, on July 1st, 2005, I moved from suburban Philadelphia, where I had a very nice, quiet congregation, having been in Pittsburgh before that and we moved to New Orleans uh, two months before Hurricane Katrina. So I, I asked my own children and any member of my congregation who asks, comes up and asks me for uh, advice on something, why they would trust my judgment in the first place. But, uh, uh, it's very interesting to be working with the congregation and the interfaith community in, in, in the face of, uh, of all that happened at that moment. And then we decided it was time to move to slightly higher ground. Uh, to, and uh, ended up here and happy to be here in this community and you are very luckily lucky to have Reverend Poling and uh, I really think I mean I just came back from a congregational trip in March with 40 members of my congregation which was an amazing trip but I think we would all agree that uh, that that trip in November and, and what came before and after it in terms of study was really uh, transformational in many ways of, of being there so it was quite something. Did, Andy, did you always know you wanted to be a rabbi, or is this something that uh, the judge told you you had to do? Or? <laughs> so we had our congregational annual meeting Friday night. Uh, attendance at the meeting part of it was rather low, and one of my officers questioned that to me, and I said, no, no, a healthy congregation or any healthy not-for-profit is one in which hardly anyone shows up to the annual meeting. You only show up at the annual meeting when there's strife in the, in the community, right, when the... Uh, so that was a good sign, but I, I did the introduction I like to, like to do, which is that my father, my grandfather was president of an Orthodox synagogue. My father was president of the Reformed Jewish synagogue I grew up at, and um, having, two, uh, uh, having two generations of synagogue leadership in, on the lay side convinced me that I had to be a rabbi and, avo and avoid having to serve as an elder or anything. <laughs> Uh, all together, I, my, group, my family grew up very, very involved in the synagogue I grew up in in New Jersey. As I just said, my dad was president at some point when I was in middle school or early high school, I guess, and uh, came out of college with it on the short list in terms of things I might be looking at and uh, just was drawn, drawn to it. My, my wife, as Jason knows, my wife is also a rabbi. Uh, her father was a rabbi, and she would actually probably answer that she knew her entire life that she... She was headed in that direction. So uh, you're at uh, Baltimore Hebrew, which is a very old congregation. In fact, older than this building, yes. which is saying something. 
Um, and uh, Baltimore Hebrew is a reform congregation. Now, we've had uh, Steve and Ron are conservative rabbis, you and uh, Rhoda Silverman, who's coming next month, as well as uh, Steve Fink, who's going to be here in July, are all reform rabbis. How, what, what's, the, uh, what's the difference? It's an interesting question. Uh, th- I would also tell you that the answer would probably be more clear-cut 50 years ago than, than it is today in terms of our own evolution. Baltimore Hebrew was founded in 1830. We are the oldest um, synagogue in the state of Maryland. Can I just say, by the way, thank you for having a name that we don't have to translate. That's very, very kind of you. When I heard it, when I heard it was Servfest, I thought, you know, I said, it's not about content. It's all about finding cute names that work in terms of uh, body. And, and my associate rabbi, uh, Alyssa Saxcone, has suggested that any time we name a program or an event anything in Hebrew, that, that makes us about the dumbest people alive because our own members can't immediately translate, <laughs> translate the Hebrew we draw upon. So Eng- English is a good uh, thing on that. I also now have the name of a congregation that I no longer have to tell anyone where, where I work either. When I'm at conferences, it all right. makes it nice and um, short. Uh, the differences between... So Baltimore Hebrew was founded in 1830. There were no Reform or Orthodox congregations at that moment. There were Jewish congregations. Some of them probably tended to be more traditional some of them probably tended to be moderately less traditional, and the 1830s is a time just beginning in this country and really a, just a decade earlier in Central Europe of, of, of Jews looking at our heritage, our texts, our understanding of how um, Scripture was created and, and reinterpreting that possibility. And uh, um, we were started as an Orthodox congregation, um, just about every synagogue in this city founded before, certainly before 1900, but probably for another 20 years after that, is an offshoot of our congregation. Um, Har Sinai congregation, um, um, I guess they're up in Weisserstown, um, uh, on Walnut, they split off from us because we were too traditional. Uh, Oheb Shalom, you can ask Rabbi Fink when he comes here because they're now a Reformed congregation. They split off from us because we were too Reformed by the time they, too liberal. Um, and Hizekamuna, Rabbi Shulman was here, they also split off from us because we were too liberal. Everyone else sort of ran, fled from us one way or another uh, in terms of this, but we're, we're still here. The answer I will give actually has to do with um, a sense of understanding the source of Scripture, which is that... Um, as the Enlightenment happened and, and, and understanding of things, um, a set of Jews came more and more to understand that while uh, the Torah may be divinely inspired, it was written by our ancestors, searching for God every bit as much as God was searching for us. And to my mind, the moment you make that crossover, you're grappling with some distinctions and some changes. The authority of the rabbinate changes, for better or worse. And, uh, the, uh, the assumption of how you practice and do different things changes. Uh, the conservative movement uh, is what I would call a moderate reform movement versus, versus what was originally a radical reform movement within um, reform Judaism. I, say, I would say it in front of Ron or Steve, so I'll say it here. Um, we understand that God did not verbatim write the text from our understanding, and therefore we live by the assumptions that follows that. Uh, the conservative movement... Um, also understands what we understand, and then in part pretends to not understand that in their <laughs> practice. So in their practice and in their discussions, they're going to they're 
be more traditional. But again, 50 years ago, the distinction between my congregation and Oeb Shalom across the street, even in terms of liturgical form, and our difference between Bethel and Hizekamuna um, on the conservative front, the difference was far broader. Uh, um, not a week goes by, Saturday morning, someone came up to me, a woman who had not been in a Reformed service in 20, 30 years, and the amount of Hebrew, the nature of the worship, some of the choices we make, we have uh, in some, some ways, certainly on the surface of liturgy, seem to have gone more traditional in that. The, 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 the difference, certainly between us and Bethel, is, is really not so extreme at this moment. Bethel's one or Steve Schwartz's. Yeah, Steve but, but there would be a much starker difference between you and the conservative Shoals and then the Orthodox. If you go from, from uh, I like to say, uh, Jews are the only people who've made uh, conservatives liberal. Right? <laughs> so the, don, the line between what I would call liberal Judaism and traditional Judaism, um, and I've got parents who are offended by the term traditional Judaism applied to anyone other than us, actually, or, or applied in a way that doesn't include us in more importance you would see stark differences between Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox. Um, uh, depends on the country, but let's just stick with the United States. Um, what, what, in, what in Judaism is called the family pew, men and women sitting next to each other in worship, you don't see in Orthodox synagogues. Men and women are going to be separated depending on the, on the synagogue. You're going to see some kind of divider between them. Uh, um, so that difference, the use of musical instruments during worship. Um, which as Reformed Jews, we would assert the Psalms show us happened in the ancient temple in Jerusalem. Uh, Orthodox synagogues will not use instruments during worship um, on festivals or on the Sabbath, in which case most of them, while they'd have daily worship, they would, wouldn't have it there. Uh, the freedom of choice that we understand our members to have about whether or not they're keeping kosher um, or a range of other things um, is all fit there. And, and to, to do it on the positive side in terms of, of principles of egalitarianism, um, principles of inclusion in terms of, of different um, uh, sexual preferences, uh, in, in, in terms of uh, embracing those who are intermarried, a whole range of things. Um, you've got a huge range of, a huge gap between the Orthodox community and the more liberal community. And living in Baltimore, you've got a whole different world view on this because um, nationally in most of the country right now, 85, 90% of the Jews in the country are either reform, uh, we're slightly the largest group nationally, or conservative who in Baltimore are, are a little larger than we are, um, or you know none of the above, other, don't care, whatever it may be. And nationally, only about 10 or 15% of the Jewish community um, would self-define as Orthodox. Whereas in Baltimore, um, we just counted this past year, um, about a third of the Jewish community in this, in, in this city is Orthodox. Uh, um, and I think if we count again in 10 years, just having to do with, with childbirth rates, we're gonna see that number, we've reached a tipping point in terms of, of skews in different Jewish directions. That might skew your views as you go to Target right down the street here or whatever in terms of uh, who, who lives in this city and who, Jew, who American Jews are. Well, uh, but at the same time, the, in, 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 the, in the synagogue worship service, you're saying many of the same prayers, right? Yes. Yep. The, same main prayers, the prayer, basic prayer structure um, is going to be the same, mm -hmm. uh, but we have, um, we have shortened it. We have taken the repetition out on purpose. 
doesn't mean there aren't songs where the chorus doesn't repeat, but, but we've taken prayers out, certain prayers that might have shown up, uh, in one case, five or six times in a service, we do once. My cantor, my musical leader keeps pushing me to do it a second time, but that's only because he's missing a melody he wants to add, not right. for theological reasons. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, he, would, he would admit that. Um, there is also in traditional prayer format, um, again, everything you get is out of my liberal bias. Um, in traditional prayer format, there are some very important parts of the service where after the congregation has been allowed to say them, the prayer leader, um, who is not necessarily ordained clergy, but the prayer leader of the moment is, 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 um, um, is going to say them again to make sure we all got them right. <laughs> I find that uh, theologically offensive, and uh, it's one of the things the Reform Movement got rid of, that, that, that repetition, uh, that literally in the Hebrew is called repetition, just, just, just to make sure, which is why our services are far shorter than... Uh, cons- conservative has left much of that repetition in, actually. And you also are following the same Torah portions. We follow the same Torah portions. There could be a couple of days a year where we might differ Torah portions for weeks. Uh, Often happens actually in the late spring, early summer, because there are holidays that that we count as one day. Uh, Or I'll give you an example the most familiar to Passover. The Bible talks about seven days. So Reformed Jews count seven days. Traditional Jews, including in this case conservative Jews, that's why I tell you they're confused, um, they count that as eight days. It's a whole complicated story of why the extra day got added, but it got added to make sure you celebrated the right seven days. So you celebrate an extra eighth day to make sure somewhere in there (laughs) you're on the right seven days. Um, It's frankly because non-Jews were trying to confuse us. Those who had left the Jewish community were trying to confuse us. So there are a couple of moments during the year where if some of those, depending on how those holidays fall, if they fall on Shabbat, if the second mistaken day of that holiday falls on Shabbat, we don't necessarily uh, have the same Torah portion, and that throws us out of whack sometimes for as much as five weeks, uh, but we're right in the wrong. So. <laughs> and during those weeks, don't believe what you read in the Jewish Times, because they're, they're wrong. Yeah. Well, generally speaking, Neil Rubin, the editor, was thinking about coming this morning. Yeah, I wouldn't say um, that publicly. Yeah. Um, so did you get that on tape? Good. Um, so, uh, well, I laugh about that. So my wife is a, is a reform rabbi also. She serves as the Hillel director, the Jewish student union director at um, Hopkins. And she, well, I do a lot of work with rabbis from other groups. She, she serves all the Jews on campus, no matter what flavor they are, and so I tease her because she can't be as bluntly honest when it comes to these differences. <laughs> she has to politely say things like, we have differences, and I just say they can't count. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and you would think, I mean, you, you guys get the practice with the Omer. My favorite mitzvah of all is the counting the Omer, where you, you know, this, this, I think I mentioned this last week, this is right now between uh, Pesach and Shavuot, between Passover and, and Pentecost, you have to count off 50 days, yes. right? And and because it, it doesn't just say, you know, look 50 days ahead and mark that on your calendar. It says, no, you shall count off 50 days. Then there is in the in the liturgy the counting of the Omer, where basically, bless you, Lord of God, it's, tell me if I get this right, who's uh, king of the universe, who's commanded us to count the Omer. 27. Okay, moving on. I mean, right, that's, that's basically that's it. it. Yeah. And yeah. If you want to talk about I talk about a, a liturgical evolution, um, we published a new prayer book as a movement 
four years ago, I guess, five years, four and a half years ago, the prayer for the counting of the Omer is in that prayer book. Mm -hmm. It is the first time in over 100 years, far over 100, 125 years, that the Reform Movement's prayer book has included that blessing. Really? No kidding. Yeah, because we yeah. figured we could just count 50 yeah, right. and not have to You'd mention think. it every yeah. day. So. And it, is it Back true out. that the count from Sesame Street is Jewish? He must be. Yeah, okay. Um, so uh, one of the reasons that we've had our, uh, our, our, our uh, friends from the, uh, the synagogues here, um, not only because they're charming people, and that's one less sermon well, at least that the I other prepared, ones are. Yeah. Me um, is that we are this year going through Torah. We're, we're actually following uh, after you guys, whatever you all do on Sunday, Saturday morning, we do on Sunday um, in terms of the, the text that we deal with. Uh, so uh, let's take a moment and look at our text for this week. This is Parshat Amor. And uh, it's four smoking chapters out of Leviticus, uh, which starts off with talking about all the things that a priest can't do and be and be married to, uh, and then ends with a dude getting stoned for blasphemy. So, uh, Andy, and you, you've obviously been doing this for a while. Uh, as, you ha- as you hit this text year after year after year, what, uh, what kind of things do you find yourself uh, drawn to in preaching? interesting questions and how we, like most Reformed congregations, from within those four chapters, we, we don't read the whole thing every year, and we choose the piece we're going to read. Uh, most conservative congregations and some Reformed congregations divide this in thirds, and each year read a third, right? To be, let's call it an A year, a B year, a C year, and they're going to focus on that piece. Most Orthodox congregations read the whole thing, though, in terms of what they study, they're going to cherry pick in terms of what's there. Um, so, so a couple of thoughts to lead into that. Actually, I was, I was thinking about this, about 15 years ago when I was a rabbi in Pittsburgh, I was teaching at the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, a course on Jewish and Christian scriptural interpretation together with a retired uh, Lutheran minister. Uh, and uh, the, the, I think every student in the class was actually a demon student, was already ordained. And I was, the, the, the Lutheran minister said to me, you know, could you give out some kind of weekly commentary of the portion. We weren't studying it week by week. We were doing a survey course, but he said, look, he wanted to do what you're doing here, which I think is amazing, right? And he wanted them, the students, to have a feel of what it meant liturgically for Jews to work their way through this. Um, I don't know when, however, the the year moved that year, because as I'm sure Reverend Poland has explained, our our, our year moves on this. Um, The first week of the class was was the first week of Leviticus, or the first week that I handed this out. So I hand out back there. It was a fax. I know it was not an email, but it was a fax I was getting each week from someone, I don't know who. Um, I handed it out, and then the next week I came in and handed it out. We didn't discuss it. It was just sort of take this home and read it. About four or five weeks in, one of the students raised their hand and said, I've got a big question that's been killing me. I said, what? He said, "Um, do you only read Leviticus? (laughs) <laughs> right? he had not no that sense. there would be anything wrong with uh, that. Well, there might be. Yeah. So I'll take you to the next level, which is the last two weeks of bar mitzvah kids, right? 13-year-olds uh, coming of age and leading us in worship. Uh, two weeks ago, the kid who had his bar mitzvah when we, um, I remember this, two, two years ago, um, I was fairly new here, and we were on a retreat assigning these kids their, their portions. They had their dates, but most of them hadn't looked at what the, the content was. Um, and this then 11-year-old um, burst into tears and ran for the room, from the room after he read his way through uh, uh, the portion from uh, what you would have done last week, ran for the room. I sort of chased yeah, him down was, in, was... in, the, in the lobby, and he, 
It was interesting because what he said was he remembered his older brothers, um, Bar Mitzvah, which happened in the fall right. in the book of so Genesis. You got like Abraham or something. You got Abraham or Noah or Jacob, and he said there were no stories here. And what I will tell you is by, uh, by two weeks ago, this kid had connected this with some wonderful stories that, that were not in the portion but were inspired by the portion, and he did not cry at his Bar Mitzvah. Yesterday's Bar Mitzvah may have been bluntly more honest when he started his own Devar Torah, his own sermon, uh, his teaching, um, by saying, as you look your way through the book of Leviticus, it's one boring chapter after another. <laughs> he said, but now I found a verse and went on to explain one verse, found his interest. Um, you know, it is, it, it's, the, it's the challenge that I think is the good um, discipline, right, to be looking at each piece and understanding that it's all got legs. It's all there for a reason um, and what's there. And Except the animals that aren't allowed to be brought for sacrifice. If well, they don't have legs, then they, they can't. They don't have legs yeah, into this, right. They can't be, they can't have damaged testicles either. That would be a problem, but I'm yeah. not trained in that, so we're no, fine. Okay. Right, I'm good. not trained in that. But if we want, so if you're going to take me there, if we're going to talk about interfaith yeah. relations on that. Yeah. The congregation I served in Pittsburgh has a <laughs> biblical garden. That I like this. Has a, has a biblical garden, um, and uh, in the garden is, is, items that are either, every item that was talked about having been grown in the Bible or things that have biblical names. And it is in a historic building, not as old as this building, but in a a historic building. And we would get different groups coming. I mean, we would get rabid gardeners coming who wanted to tour the garden, and we'd have different people. And we had a a group from a small town somewhere outside of Pittsburgh, an hour outside of Pittsburgh, spending the day going to the museum and touring Pittsburgh. And I give this group from a church a church group, a tour of the synagogue. They peek at the garden. I let one of the gardeners do that. I show them around our synagogue. I explain the Torah. And we're about to leave, and I'm talking to the 15 people. And one of this woman raises her hand and says, um, excuse me, Rabbi, I'm disappointed. I mean, I disappoint people all the time. But as I, I said, why are you disappointed? And she said, I was hoping to see, I remember the word even, actually. She was, I was hoping to see the implements. <laughs> I mean, I gotta tell you, I have no idea what she's talking about. And then I suddenly, somehow, she repeats herself. I realize um, the implements. She was hoping to see the implements that would be used for animal sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. Because um, she probably had been reading Leviticus, or frankly, her understanding of who Jews were came from reading Leviticus in a community where there wasn't a rabbi um, to come by. To his credit, the minister is turning red <laughs> in the back of this group of 15 people. And I give, I, at that moment, came up with my lifelong answer, which is that basically the last time a Jew sacrificed an animal is the last time a Christian sacrificed an animal, uh, give or take a couple of decades, yeah. uh, more, or less, more or less there. I would actually tell you that, to me, the most important relevant material we're looking at here is actually Chapter 23 of Leviticus, uh, which is not to say that I... Um, there's not other material here that's, that's relevant because it's all relevant in one way or another. The initial two chapters here are probably mostly about how you set yourself apart, how you try to draw closer to God. The last chapter in terms of uh, the uh, blasphemy of God, we could spend hours, right, a whole, a whole course on trying to understand what goes on there. But, but 23, which is going to strike you as pretty dry, Okay. We have to remember that before we had our iPhones um, and even before we had the technology that said we were going to take a calendar and simply thumbtack it to our bulletin board, that we're looking at a calendar here. 
Right? So we're looking at the significance of how do we know to come together and mark time past just um, the Sabbath. So fine, we get that from the very first chapter right? but, but of, of Genesis. But, but how do we know our way through? And um, frankly, you can even distinguish by looking at Leviticus 23, which is echoing a chapter later in, 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 ex, in, in, in later Exodus, um, but um, right, that this sense of, of what are the fixed times that we are going to signify these things through. And so you, um, you get a reminder of Shabbat. Let's not forget that piece. Every my, my, one of my least favorite questions, but, but every silly religious school teacher, Jewish religious school teacher's question, I don't know if this, this works in the church, um, is to look at a group of kids and say, what's the next holiday? Right? And kids raise their hand, and in this case would say Shavuot, or say Passover, and of course the answer is Shabbat. Almost always, unless you're in a week of a holiday, right? It's, it's, a, it's a trick question, but we've got, we've got that right in here, and then we're going to walk our way through. Um, and sometimes it's a little confusing, but we're going to walk our way through. So if you look at Leviticus 23, verse 4, because I just fled through Shabbat, um, these are the set times of the Lord, the sacred occasions on which you celebrate its appointed time in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at the twilight of there shall be a Passover offering of the Lord. And we find ourselves at Passover, okay, on the first month, which if you look at any Jewish calendar on, any, in your, on your computer today, if you were to pull one up, the first month is in the fall with Rosh Hashanah, not now. And so we come to the fact that biblically they were counting their first month differently. Right? And you'll see, that, you'll see that in a moment. But we've got Passover uh, in terms of that. You'll see I'm right. It says seven days, not eight. Right? <laughs> uh, in terms of that, so we're going to get the rules there as we move our way through that. If you go to verse 15, you get to Jason's favorite uh, seven weeks here, right? Seven weeks of, of seven days, 49. 50th is going to be uh, Shavuot, Pentecost, so we're going to have that there in terms of, of, of another um, offering. I'm going to keep rolling here to verse 23. Uh, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the Israelite people thus, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a complete rest, a sacred occasion commemorated with loud blasts. Right? That's Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah means the new year. But the new year is in what month? Seventh month. Okay. Um, so... We can deal with that. We're going to have the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur after that, and we're going to come to Sukkot um, after that. Hanukkah, which may be the most familiar Jewish holiday to you, is non-biblical. It doesn't exist in Biblical because the events it's talking about are too late historically to end up at this point. It would be nonsensical if Hanukkah was mentioned in Leviticus uh, 23. But we've got here a sense of how we're going to balance time, how we're going to mark time, especially in an agrarian society. And then the challenge of certainly living in suburban America, but really the challenge of the moment we move out of that agrarian pattern of living in the land of Israel uh, is how do we apply these further? How do these calendar dates make sense to us? I mean, they, they are, um, take, Rosh, take Shabbat, Rosh Hashanah, and Yom Kippur out of the mix, the three most important biblical holidays that we just went through are Passover, Shavuot, Sukkot. They're all agricultural. But they're all agriculture. They're all about an early harvest. They're all about three harvests, plus um, even more importantly, has to do with the reality of the need for, for rain. I mean, think about this flooding in, 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 in along the Mississippi Valley right now. 
land of Israel is a whole different thing. As we saw, <laughs> right. as we saw when we were sitting um, in a chapel right at the uh, Lake of Galilee. Mm-hmm. That was a Tagba. Where was this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. Um, was that fishes and loaves? Am I getting this right? Did yes, I pay attention? That was the, the, uh, I, the uh, Church of the Multiplication. Okay, uh, is what it was. Okay. Yeah. See, I paid attention. So we were sitting in a chapel, an outside chapel, as a group of clergy, um, and the shore of the Kinneret, the Galilee, should have been about as far from Jason and me to that back wall. And instead, it was about as far as to where the parking lot begins, which talks about the drought that's now been in their seventh year. They, they, they did okay in late winter this year, so it was not at the worst of the last seven years, but it was not, not enough, and it has to do with... with with water issues um, in that land so that it's not going to rain between Sukkot, call that late October, and Passover. uh, That's only when it's going to rain, pardon me. And this time of year, you can plan your congregational picnic no problem because it's not going to rain in the winter in this reality of of dealing with it. But if I don't live in a land where that that, that makes no sense in Baltimore. So that connects me to the land of Israel. It's very important. But what do I do beyond that? And the rabbis, still relevant to us today, lay on a memory, a historical heritage message upon that, on top of that, which is to say that Passover is when we get out of Egypt. Um, Shavuot is revelation at Sinai. Okay? I embrace that even, even as I believe my ancestors wrote this, um, not, not God verbatim. And Sukkot, celebrating um, the passage through Sinai as a whole the passage from Egypt to the Promised Land to begin with. But you've got two sets of messages immediately overlaid upon each other, an agrarian and a historical set of messages um, that I think is, again, very relevant in terms of our discussions and uh, living in a a, a generation where we're all the more aware of um, environmental issues, or should we call them survival issues in the long run, this question of who owns the land and how does this go and how do we respect it through it become, I think, become magnified all the more than they might have been in earlier generations. I, I don't think that's uniquely Jewish in faith tradition. I think sure. it's in front of all of us. Sure. I, I've been monopolizing here, and we've only got a couple more minutes. Uh, did any of you have any, any uh, questions uh, that you wanted to ask Rabbi Bush this morning? Uh, otherwise, I've got a couple more I get to drop. Yes. The three major festivals, and the, and the interesting thing then becomes what the Bible seems to present, the rabbinic literature seems to present, and then what scholarship tells us probably happened. Because um, don't imagine that the entire country emptied out and went to Jerusalem, right? It was probably more complicated. It's probably a representative of the community went or people took their turns. Uh, the three holidays that were the pilgrimage festivals, literally, uh, were Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Right? And you, you could not, it said most clearly around Shavuot, but it applies across the board, you could not eat of your produce right, until you had taken and made an offering in the temple in Jerusalem. Um, some of that may be, uh, some of that may be that if you lived way up in the north, it may be that you sold your product, right? you sold a piece of it, you came back down and you bought some. Um, uh, to frankly give those money changers in the Temple Mount their fair due, it was, it was an economic system to enable me not having to, 
to bring a whole pile of wheat <laughs> right. with me right. and buy it there um, in terms of it. So that's, and you act, we actually hear that, right? So that the Muslim pilgrimage that every Muslim has to make once in his lifetime, his or her lifetime, uh, to Mecca is called the Hajj. In Hebrew, um, uh, the pilgrimage festivals, uh, a holiday is a Chag. And you can hear the cognate between Hajj and Chag that from the Hebrew to the Arabic, we're hearing, we're hearing the same thing. It, it, it manifests differently. It wasn't once in a lifetime. It was over time. But um, it's exactly that. And there are echoes liturgically and practice-wise in what we do about this. We celebrate confirmation in 10th grade. Actually, a modern, a reform innovation, though conservatives and many Orthodox even have followed this. We celebrated on Shavuot to link that pilgrimage festival. I don't take all my kids necessarily to Israel that day, but liturgically and, and educationally to link to link that. Kendall? <laughs> so now the important thing is that two of my kids were born in two two of my kids were born in uh, 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 Pittsburgh. Actually, um, no, we are. Uh, uh, not Ravens fans either, though. We, we are Saints fans, actually, oh, uh, uh, which, which seems acceptable in this city. But, uh, <laughs> as long as you're not a Steelers fan. No, you know, it's not a fan. Yes, Rick? So, and, this may be oh, in fact, I'll go even further. The search committee chair who hired me here told me that a per public disavowal of the Steelers was necessary, actually. Yeah. That's about right. Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Or a booth, toll booth at a highway, right? Sure. The reference there and, and the name of that holiday in Hebrew um, is found right in that word booth is Sukkot, um, S-U-K-K-O-T in the English, but, but a Sukkot, a, which is plural, right, booths, a Sukkah, singular, um, which, if you drive around this area, I mean, you guys live in a good place to understand that if you drive around this area during Sukkot, right, right after Yom Kippur, you can see people have booths set up. I mean, if you drive right in front of, I mean, we put ours on the front lawns. We've got this giant thing in front of Baltimore Hebrew um, at Slade and, and Park Heights, um, but they're all around. They are um, a version <laughs> of what was built by our ancestors. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you, there's actually um, some, there's the symbolism and it ties to both narratives. I told you there's this historical narrative about getting out of Egypt, but there's also an agricultural narrative of what it meant to farm and live in the land of Israel. And the Sukkot tied, tied to either. So the, the, the message we're usually told is that these symbolize the lean-tos that the Jews would have built during their journey through the Sinai, right? That, that, that you leave Egypt and it takes you 40 years to get to Israel, and what are you living in? You can't go to REI and buy a nice tent, right? And so that in some way these symbolize the, the, the journey through the desert, which is what that festival symbolizes, the journey of our people um, through the desert. I tend to be a religious pragmatist. I actually think probably the primary um, level of that, because as I told you, I think the agricultural level actually precedes the historical level in, in, in interpretation here, is that um, where the villages were in the land of Israel, so that you'd be safe in your village, 
was not always where your fields were. You're going to have a bunch of people living together, and if we're thinking Judean hills and the terraces that we, that we saw there, your field is going to be a fair hike away. Um, the rain, it all ties together, right? It's only going to rain, start raining right after Sukkot. And you've got to get your fall harvest in before it starts raining and before it's destroyed. And simultaneously, if it's time to harvest and you don't live right next to your crops, um, you want to make sure no one's stealing your crops as you're about to harvest them. So the booth, the other thing the booth is, in addition to being a memory of what we lived in as we went out of Egypt, right, is, is, is a memory of where ancient Israelites would camp out while they harvested their food in the fall. So that, you know, you'd leave your house and you'd go with, with any kids in the family who were old enough and you'd go harvest your field, help your neighbors if your fields were right next to each other, but that way you weren't wasting time getting back and forth to the field so that you'd get it in before the rain and, and keep it covered and then, and then bring it in to market or wherever you store it. I'm not an expert on where ancient Israelites stored their grain. It's not, it's not my field. Right. Yeah, that was. The, there's a, a passage in the uh, in the in the Gospels. One of these classic disciples looking like an idiot stories, where where uh, uh, they're they're up on this mountain. Uh, Jesus has taken Peter, James, and John. It's kind of his his top three guys with him. Uh, what? Yeah. Um, so they're up on this mountain, and uh, suddenly they see Jesus transfigured. Uh, and he's sort of, you know, glowing. Uh, so he's looking radioactive. And then with him uh, are two other figures that they uh, understand to be Moses and Elijah. And Peter, Jesus' number one disciple, says, hey, it's a good thing we're here. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll go make some booths for you guys. Which, you know, uh, I think this is one of those. I think that may be actually one of the places where Jesus says he does not know what he's talking about. Um, <laughs> Uh, so yeah, that, I, I don't know what what would have made uh, Peter think of Sukkot, but at that moment, uh, at that knows. very moment, go figure. Maybe the time of year, do we know? Uh, yeah, Chris, uh, one more. Yeah, uh, next year or next week, we're talking about sabbatical year and the year of yeah. Jubilee, which, uh, my understanding, is, has to do with land redistribution. Yeah. Um, a couple questions. It's important because Jesus kicked off his ministry in an occupied territory by talking about the year of Jubilee, which may indicate trouble. Um, but how does this translate now? Well, you know, it goes, it goes in two different ways. What I'll tell you is that every liberal rabbi in this country, which is, he was Stephen S. Wise, a name worth look, looking up, who was one of the great rabbis of the early 20th century um, in America, uh, who um, actually was serving and had the opportunity to serve at one of the leading congregations in New York, Emmanuel, still there. He left it because he felt too beholden to the business, to the business interests of the congregation and wanted freedom of the pulpit. Um, was leading high holiday services in Carnegie Hall, which they had rented, having almost completed his building fund to build a new synagogue. And I frankly, I should look this up, but uh, uh, I knew it once upon a time, there was some major strike going on, a big fight between business interests and the union. And wise being wise, he, he, he being himself, he stood up and gave an absolutely radical, virulent pro-union sermon, at which point several of his major donors stood up and walked out 
Um, and needless to say, it took a while before the synagogue building actually was built because he was true to himself. And so, I mean, I think this question of not necessarily land redistribution and not necessarily to the radical point that Wise would necessarily take it from, but a question of anyone, wherever you sit um, politically within the Jewish community, and I mean secular politics, whatever your view is, is a question of, of fairness, of, an, of, of, of opportunity um, in terms of, of what's there. Um, two pieces is this, this, this whole concept of land redistribution runs into a problem very early on. There's actually not great evidence that it was really ever followed the way it is. And Hillel, one of the great rabbis, um, uh, very early on ends up coming up with a legal um, loophole um, that enables this because, because this effort to make the society operate fairly was not enabling the society to operate, right? So if I get to reclaim what's mine um, after 50 years, you might loan me money in year 9, 10, or 13, but you're not going to loan me money on a fir- you're not going to make a f- five-year loan to me in year 45, 46, 47, because... I could just default on the loan, and you're out, and, and, they, and, they, and they, 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 they come up with a way that gets around it. There, are, there is, in, in Israel today, um, most people ignore this, but, but technically Israeli farms um, are sold to a non-Jew for a year on the year that the last Jubilee year was a couple of years ago. I remember reading stories about someone who, you know, a, a Christian that they're sold to, um, to make up for that, right? But the question of visions of, of equality, of egalitarianism, right? So the Liberty Bell, this is next week, but the Liberty Bell is uh, Leviticus 25, verse 10, the second half of the verse. Um, and the interesting thing is, right, we think of the Liberty Bell as liberty, right? Proclaim liberty. The word drawer, um, which I admit I, uh, to some extent ends up meaning liberty, in, in its textual context means release, so this American vision of what liberty might mean is not what the Liberty Bell quote originally means. It is by the time they put on the Liberty Bell, I assume. Right? But release is about releasing those who are indentured servants, right? who defaulted on their loans and were their own collateral, and therefore were not enslaved is the wrong word because they were not permanent slaves, but they were indentured for a period of time. And the Liberty Bell's initial reading is, is a far narrower reading. So that's, I mean, next week... Um, those are very fruitful passages, another agricultural reference meant, but very fruitful references in terms of trying to understand, right? Scripture doesn't dictate policy, but, but inspiring us to try to grapple with the kinds of political issues America's trying to deal with right now, there are definitely quotes that bear study in terms of trying to understand them. Well, uh, Andy, thank you so much for being with us this morning. We really thank appreciate you. it. Uh, give a hand to Andy. Thank you. My pleasure.